Welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, and to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. Let's pray as we enter into God's word and its consideration. Father, we come to you acknowledging our great need, that even our ears are tarnished with the sin that besets us. So as we hear your word today, we pray that your spirit would open our ears, give us vision with sight to see, to hear the Lord Christ preached and to receive your word in such a way that we receive with it the very unction of the Spirit. Grant to us these requests, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Our fellowship with God in Christ Jesus is evident from our behavior more than our talk. When I preached the last sermon that I delivered to you here at Christ Bible Church in August, I began a series on 1 John, which I intend to continue whenever I have an occasion to fill the pulpit, which may, if we if we extrapolate that out, it may take some years for me to get through First John. <laughs> that sermon focused on the first four verses of First John. The title of that message was this, Our Fellowship with God in Christ Jesus Rests on the Apostolic Witness. Today's message is similar. Our fellowship with God in Christ Jesus is evident from our behavior more than our talk. What we have seen and we have heard, we also announce to you that you also may have fellowship with us. That was John's message at the opening of his, which is often called a letter, but it's much more like a homily or a sermon. When John uses the word fellowship, he speaks of what we have in common. To have fellowship with someone is to have something in common. First with God, as John argues, and then with fellow believers. What is it that we have in common? It is nothing other than or greater than the great and wonderful blessing of receiving and having a share in eternal life already, even now, in advance of the last day. 
Today's message continues with that theme with the next sequence of verses, verses 5 through 10, which have been read in your hearing. A much shorter sermon title for this might be Talking Versus Walking. It's easy to talk of being a Christian. Far more difficult is it to walk the Christian life. Here, you have heard then the word of the Lord read to you, and so let's then consider that passage. Our focus this morning will be on these six verses of 1 John, verses 5 through 10. More than a century ago, a man by the name of Robert Law wrote a book and published it with the title, The Tests of Life, subtitle, A Study of the First Epistle of St. John. It's a superb book. And the title of the book is effectively capturing the message of 1 John, which is expressed quite clearly in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, where John wrote these words, I write these things to you, to you who believe in the name of God's Son, that you might know that you have eternal life. In 1 John, the apostle expounds Jesus' teachings that he records in his own gospel, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says this, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not apprehended the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The light was in the world, and the light was made through the, the world was made through the light, yet the world did not know the light. The verses before us today in 1 John provide tests of having a share in eternal life. And as we consider these passages, let's do so under three heads. There are three aspects of the word's message. The word, of course, being the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three aspects of the word's message conveyed to the apostolic witnesses of which John was one. And those three aspects are these. First, we're going to consider from verse 5, the word's message concerning God's character. Second, from verses 6 and 7, the word's message concerning our relationship with God. And then third, verses 8 through 10, the word's message concerning sin. So concerning God's character, concerning our relationship with God, and then finally concerning sin. So first, the word's message concerning God's character. Verse 5, and this is the message that we have heard from him, and we are announcing to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness, no, not any. The opening four verses of 1 John emphatically affirm that the word of life, who was from the beginning, came bodily with tangible, substantial, touchable, physical body. 
revealing in the flesh the message of eternal life that is in God to his chosen apostles, of whom John was one. What the apostolic witnesses heard, saw, and touched pertains directly to God, who is invisible, but also revealed and now revealed in human flesh. That is, of course, what we celebrate at Advent, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, of which John is speaking in 1 John, the first four verses. The message, God is light, contrasts with all humanly contrived religious systems where gods and goddesses are associated either with heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, planets or stars, or with the deification of human reason, especially with the dawn of the so-called enlightenment, heightened and highlighted by the French Revolution. The enlightenment was of no such thing at all. It was the darkening of humanity. The message, God is light, compels us to return to the beginning, just as the opening of John's gospel does, when he tells us that which was from the beginning, here in his letter and in his gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he moves quickly to, move, to moving from speaking of the word to the light. The light that first in God's material creation was dawning was not the heavenly body called the sun, but God's son who is light. When God said, let there be light, that was not the creation of the sun which was formed and revealed on the fourth day. But the beginning light, the beaming of light on God's created earth and creation of the heavenly bodies was the light being shed from Christ himself, who is the son of God, who is the light. And he speaks of himself as the light of the world. The message of John's gospel is that the word incarnate was not received by his own people. Rather, the message of the word was rejected by his own people. But this light exposes our moral fail fallenness and our impurity. God's light penetrates the darkest corners of humanly contrived notions, errors, false worship, and deviant teachings concerning God. This light also provides the transforming dynamic that redeems us to love God and his children and also to cherish 
the truth as it is in Jesus. To his statement, God is light, John adds, and in God there is no darkness, none at all. John uses this expression, none at all, to emphasize the truth that he is affirming concerning God by way of an intense double negative. When we use double negatives in English, it becomes problematic. But in the Greek language, double negatives are used frequently. And John uses a double negative. And he uses it again in John chapter 4, 1 John 4, verse 12, when he says, no one has ever seen God, never at any time. He's emphatically making the point that there is no darkness with God whatsoever, none. God who is light, whom the created bright ball in the sky called the sun imitates, both enlightens and darkens eyes. Like with the sun, if we look directly at the sun, we will become blinded, at least temporarily. And the light that is from Christ either opens our eyes to see all that is enlightened, or it blinds us. Thanks be to God that he has opened our eyes with that light. And now let's move to the second aspect of what John speaks of here. That concerns the message concerning God. And now let's move to the second, the words message concerning our relationship with God. Verses six and seven. If we claim we have fellowship with him and we are walking in darkness, we are lying and we are not practicing the truth. But if we are walking in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from every sin. What John does here is he expounds on Jesus' teaching that is recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Hear the words of Jesus. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, the apostle begins a series of matched sets, contrasting our talk with our walk, our claims with our behavior. This series extends into chapter, six, chapter 2, verse 6, but our considerations here are only in the first chapter. Here, John resumes his earlier mention of fellowship that he that he brought forth in what we call verse 3, where he speaks of having fellowship in two dimensions, horizontally 
and vertically. The first is the relationship between believers. We, what we have seen, John tells us, and we have heard, we also announce to you that you also may have fellowship with us. So John is speaking there of this horizontal relationship, this fellowship, this participating together in eternal life. But the second dimension is this. Now also our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The second relationship, the vertical relationship, grounds the horizontal. Our relationship with the Father and with his Son is the very ground of our relationship with one another, sharing in this eternal life. And as we consider this aspect of the message, let's consider two points. First, a claim falsified by conduct. The gospel holds before us two pathways. God's word presents us with the boulevard Broadway, Broadway Boulevard, or Narrow Way. It names, a, it names the Narrow Way that way. I'm adding Boulevard to the Broadway. But there are two ways, Broadway Boulevard or Narrow Way. And on the Narrow Way that begins at Straight Gate, which has no reference to straightness, but has reference to narrowness, like the Straits of Gibraltar. On the narrow way that begins at the straight gate, those who walk it have fellowship with God and with his son. The narrow way leads to eternal life. Those who walk Broadway Boulevard have no fellowship with God or his son. Broadway leads to eternal death. To destruction. Nevertheless, there, are, there have always been many people throughout the ages who denounce everyone who passes through the straight gate and who walks the narrow way. They claim that we're way too narrow, way too restrictive, too judgmental for affirming that only people who confess Jesus Christ as Lord will be redeemed. They direct people to join them on Broadway Boulevard where claims of fellowship with God are accepted as authentic while tolerating sinful behavior. The Apostle John contradicts such tolerance for sin. If we claim we have fellowship with him and we are walking in darkness, we are lying and we are not practicing the truth. What does it mean to have fellowship with God? As I have already showed you, to have fellowship with God is to have a share in eternal life. Eternal life with God. Many Christians have the false notion that to have fellowship in 1 John speaks of something deeper, something greater, something more than eternal life, as if there were something more. And so they speak of a fuller life, 
a deeper life, a higher plane living. But John has not, none of this in his first letter. He has none of that. He is not speaking about something greater than eternal life. He's speaking about eternal life. What could be greater than that? Such a notion is entirely foreign to everything that John is speaking of. He is expounding Jesus' teaching concerning light and darkness. He means this. If we claim we have a share in eternal life with God and we are walking in darkness, we are lying and we are not practicing the truth. To make the claim of having fellowship with God that is not matched by one's walk means that the person who's making the claim is walking Broadway, Broadway Boulevard, not the narrow way. Broadway Boulevard, where darkness prevails and leads to eternal destruction. In the great tradition of the Old Testament, the Apostle John uses the imagery of walking to represent our conduct, how we behave. Likewise, John draws on both Jesus' teaching and the Old Testament use of darkness versus light to represent unholiness versus holiness and falsehood versus truthfulness. So John's reasoning turns on these two inseparable linkages. First, the inseparable linkage is this, light, truth, eternal life, and fellowship with God. And the second inseparable linkage is this, darkness, falsehood, eternal death, separation from God. Those are the two that John puts before us. Anyone who asserts, I have a share in eternal life with God while living in unholiness, speaks falsehoods, not speaking or doing what is true. John has stated the claim falsified by conduct, and now let's consider the second aspect of this portion, the conduct that speaks louder than words. John writes, but if we are walking in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. The Apostle John here speaks very much like King David, who wrote in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. John is expounding Jesus' teaching, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that, he, that his works have been carried out in God. So John is speaking in the tradition of the Old Testament like David. Walking has to do with one's behavior. And of Jesus, who speaks of those who come into the light. Now, when John says we have fellowship with one another, what does he mean when he says one another? Here in this verse, when he speaks of one another, the usual assumption is that John is speaking of Christian to Christian fellowship. 
having fellowship with one another. Certainly, John does not deny that this horizontal fellowship is a reality. He's already spoken of that. We want to share eternal life with you, which is why we write to you. But that is not what John is speaking of here. Here, in John's verse, instead, when he says, we have fellowship with one another, John's orientation is not horizontal, but it's vertical. Our fellowship is with God and with his son. Isn't this clear from what he says in the verse? I read it again. But we, if we are walking in the light as he, that is God, is in the light, God and we have fellowship with one another. It's a remarkable statement. And it is far more remarkable than how we typically understand it, as though John were speaking about fellowship with Christians. No, this is we together have fellowship with God, a remarkable reality that is ours only in Christ Jesus. And then John adds the last clause in verse 7, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. Now surely, when John wrote these words, he must have had a wry smile on his face as he thought, I wonder how many of my readers will quickly recognize my deliberate oxymoron. Do you hear it? Do you see it? Blood cleanses? It's very deliberate. It's eye-catching. It's ear-catching when you hear it read. Who cleanses with blood? God and God alone. Blood is a figure of speech derived from the Old Testament where blood regularly represents sacrificial death. Because the life is in the blood, the shedding of blood means death. And in the temple, whenever a Passover lamb was slaughtered, it was a bloody mess, a bloody sacrifice. Christ's blood, his sacrificial blood, cleanses us. Christ is our Passover lamb who put an end to the all bleating and bleeding lambs. No more sacrifice is needed. Christ, our Passover lamb, suffices. Now before we leave verse 7, there's one more thing to notice. Our modern English translations treat the verse this way, the final portion of the verse, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses from all sin. Both the NIV and the ESV do that. Now certainly, this is a legitimate translation. I have no argument with that. However, it is entirely possible for us to hone in a little bit more closely on that verse to recognize that there's maybe some, a little bit more precision in the language that John uses. 
so that we might translate it this way. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. John's wording accents the thoroughness of the cleansing. This means every single sin singled out separately rather than all sin considered collectively, as the NIV and ESV would translate it. That is how penetrating his cleansing is from every sin. Now let's turn to the third message or element of, of the word's message. The word's message concerning sin, verses 8 through 10. If we claim we do not have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous that he remits our sins and cleanses from every unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Two aspects here as we conclude this portion. First, two false claims. John identifies two false claims that contrast with authentic Christian speech. Both false claims concern sin. The first is this. If we claim we do not have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And the second is, if we claim we have not committed sin, we make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Here the Apostle John beckons us to contemplate the arrogant pretentiousness of sinners with their bogus claims of uprightness. Verses 8 and 10. And the commendable piety of Christians who confess their sins. Verse 9, as we have just seen. In the light of God's holy moral excellence, his pure light. It may seem incomprehensible to us that anyone would ever make such claims. Perhaps most people would not be so bold as to make such a ridiculous claim or claims, yet some do. Yet these are the claims that people invariably assert by their refusal to come to Christ Jesus for cleansing. They, in effect, are asserting by their actions that they have no need for cleansing. Everyone who claims to be exempt from sin's corruption or from omitting sins and acts of sins, people who pretend that they never actually sin, is stunningly self-deceived. Everyone is stunningly self-deceived who makes such claims. If we deny sin's contamination and deny that we commit acts of sin, we, one, lie to ourselves, exhibiting we commit, exhibiting that we do not possess the truth. And two, we live by lies. And worst of all, 
Three, we make God out to be a liar. God has testified against us. Now, the second aspect that we want to consider from verses 8 and 10 is this. Authentic Christian speech. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous that he remits our sins and cleanses us from every unrighteousness. What heartening words. God does not leave us to ourselves. The Apostle John sharply contrasts how Christians speak compared to those who are exposed as frauds. Certainly, John's reasoning does not suggest that we Christians need not speak but simply behave. His point is that our talk must match our walk. Christians do not enlarge the straight gate or broaden the narrow way. We Christians need not make loud claims concerning our fellowship with God and with his son, Jesus Christ. Our walk is commensurate with our talk, as John affirms in verse 7. But if we, walk, if we are walking in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. Now, in verse 9, John expands on that affirmation in verse 7. When we do sin, John tells us, we Christians do not deny that we have sinned, nor do we deny that sin tarnishes our most holy words and deeds. The good news, as it is in Jesus, makes it clear that God forgives the sins of all who confess their sins. That's the message that we so cherish. God remits the sins of confessors. Thus, we confess our sins, knowing that God has committed himself to be faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. It's fitting to linger a little bit over this verse as we consider verse 9. A few things, four things in particular. First, to confess our sins is the opposite of denying that we confess. And that's how John places it. To confess our sins is to agree with God's testimony about ourselves. God bears witness that we all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And we must agree with his testimony. A second point that we need to consider from verse 9. We are obligated to confess our sins against God. People throughout our culture demand that we Christians confess holy thoughts, good deeds, sacred words, and speaking the truth as sinful. The things that are truly right and good and proper and holy and God-honoring, they demand that we confess these as sinful because they take offense at all of these things. 
simply to speak the truth such as addressing a man with masculine pronouns or a woman with feminine pronouns is condemned as wrong. And an apology, if not a confession, is demanded. Confession of wrongdoing is regularly demanded for this kind of thing, and a whole lot more in our culture. To confess such things as sinful is to sin against the Lord God. It is to compromise. It is to speak falsehood. It may satisfy the hypersensitive and the sensibilities of people, but it is going to anger God. And this we must never do. We must always speak the truth. Yes, speaking the truth causes offense, and let it be so. But we must not confess wrongdoing when we speak truths that offend evil sensibilities. We must confess real sins, sins against God's holy character. A third point to consider here with verse 9. Notice what God forgives. The scriptures are quite clear on this. God does not forgive people. Now that may sound shocking to you, but no, God does not forgive people. God forgives sins. He remits confessed sin. God does not forgive people any more than a banker would forgive people. Bankers don't forgive people. A banker might forgive a debt, but he doesn't forgive people. The people are only the recipients of the forgiveness of the debt, and we are the recipients of the forgiveness of God's sins. It's sins that God remits. It's sins that God forgives. So, the Lord taught us to pray. Grant to us forgiveness of our debts as we grant forgiveness to our debtors. And we pray this in the Lord's Prayer. A fourth point to consider in verse 9 and finally. Finally, as with verse 7, verse 9 does the same thing, and we see the ESV and the NIV translating the verse this way, that God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Again, these are legitimate translations, yet it seems very likely that in verse 9, as in verse 7, John's wording is accenting the thoroughness of the cleansing. And in verse 7, he spoke of being, being forgiven from every sin, cleansed from every sin. Here, he speaks of being cleansed from every unrighteousness. Singled out, identified, rather than simply all unrighteousness considered collectively. So what does all of this have to say to us? Of course, as children of the Heavenly Father, we speak the truth with our mouths. Yet, we do not make brash and foolish claims concerning ourselves that contradict who we truly are as people 
who lamentably commit sins. Let our speech be pleasing to the Lord, and as the Apostle John, or as the Apostle Paul tells us, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Colossians 4, verse 6. But understand this. Our behavior betrays our speech, as Jesus teaches us. What is your behavior exposing about your speech? Does your conduct match your speech? Or does your conduct expose your speech as fraudulent? Jesus tells us and teaches us this. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, uh, brings forth good and evil persons out of their evil treasure bring forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Matthew 12, verses 34 through 37. Truly, the Apostle John has made his point clear. Our fellowship with God in Christ Jesus is evident from our behavior more than from our talk. Let's pray. Father, we use a lot of words, and your word has told us very clearly that where there are many words, sin is not far from it. Teach us to measure our words and to measure our words in such a way that our words and our behavior match. Bring about in each of us that reality that you might be glorified in all that we say, but also in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Christ Bible Church. Remember, this world is dripping with meaning because Christ created it, he sustains it, and he is reconciling it all to himself. Now go and live out that glorious truth.